0: All right. So tonight we are going to be in Mark chapter 15 is where we are. (laughs) I thought it'd be fun to continue to take breaks from Luke as we did all these things. I think last week for the triumphal entry, we were in Matthew, uh, for Easter night and really today the, um, the desire is that we just spend some time looking at it. This isn't my intention going to be like a Sunday morning in depth kind of study. I just want us to seriously remember why we call this good Friday. Like, I feel like that's what the Lord kept putting on my heart. And it's something the Lord put on my heart the last two years. I actually had the the honor of teaching good Friday service at Pomona Valley the last several years. And it was always fun to do different texts and kind of see what's there. I did Isaiah 53 one year. I did Mark uh, one year in, Just to remember that the whole point of today is to celebrate. It sounds weird to the world, but to celebrate the death of Jesus. And the world looking in is like, that's so weird. Like that's your leader. That's your savior. That's your king. And you're celebrating that he died. Again, apart from Resurrection Sunday, it would be bad Friday. It would be awful Friday. It would be like a Friday. It would be something we don't even talk about because there'd be no reason to talk about But the fact that Jesus resurrected proved that Friday is indeed good because it was the receipt to the transaction that happened on Friday when he rose on Sunday, Amen. And so we see that. And I think it's so important to remember that as believers is, man, good Friday. This is a good thing to remember as heavy as it can be. And I will tell you, this isn't going to be one of those ones where we like take like the the scientific approach to explaining the pain involved. We're not doing that. That's not my I think that's a, a really wild thing. I get that. But that's not what we're doing tonight. We're looking at the fact that Jesus is and always was the perfect servant, the perfect man, son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so if you're at Mark 15, say I'm there. All right, cool. Let's look at the first five verses. It says, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing so that Pilate marveled. And see, in this chapter, we're going to see several different encounters with Christ, The first encounter is one of Pilate. He's a powerful ruler and he's a guy that has, well, he's got power. He's got, he's got everything that he probably ever desired. He's got the kingdom. He's got the money. He's got the fame. He's got all that stuff. Right. And he's ruling over the Jewish people in this region. He's not Caesar, but he's the governor of that region. Right. And so what happens here is we're told that in the morning, they, the chief priests, had brought Jesus to Pilate. But what we don't get in this chapter, because we jumped right into it, right? Mark chapter 14 tells us they had no legal trial the night before. They went and they arrested Jesus in the garden, right? And they took him and they took them to like the religious power. So all the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, that's a 70 member like Jewish council. They were like the, I don't know, Congress or whatever of the Jews, right? And they would get together and they would say, We believe that this is a problem. So we're going to have a court case. The problem is you weren't supposed to do those at nighttime. So it was completely illegal. And all the accusations were false, which we can imagine because Jesus was perfect. (laughs) How do you charge a perfect, innocent man? You'd have to make up things. And so we know that as they, they tried to like make these things work, they're like, man, we can't accuse this guy. None of our stories are lining up, right? But at one point in Mark 14, 62, they asked Jesus if he was the Christ, if he was the Messiah. And Jesus said to them, I am, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. At that point, the religious leaders were like, oh, that's it. We got him. Blasphemy. Because see, Jesus was telling the truth, but they didn't believe in him. Again, we've talked about this on Sunday mornings, right? They had their agenda. The Messiah was coming to overthrow Rome and to rebuild the temple. Jesus was saying things like, I'm going to knock this temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it. And they're like, Okay, maybe that's a weird approach, but we'll see it when you rebuild it. Now, we know in John 2, he said he was talking about his body that in three days he would resurrect. He's talking about this temple (laughs) and they didn't know it and they didn't understand it. And they didn't. They were blinded by pride and arrogance and unwillingness to leave their agenda and accept Jesus as their true Messiah. And so when they knew if they asked him if he's the Messiah, he's going to be like, yeah, you got it. And they're like, oh, see, blasphemy. There you go. And so I believe it's John 5, 18. It says, therefore, the Jews saw all the more to kill him, not only because he broke the Sabbath, but also because he said he was the son of God, making himself equal to God. So basically he's saying, I'm God. And they are like, okay, now we're in the situation where this dude's either really crazy, we don't believe he's God, but he's blaspheming. We can kill him because he's a distraction to all of our power and all of our practices at the temple. That's what this comes down to. People are starting to not go to the temple with the same heart that used to honor these men that had all their power because they were following Jesus. And Jesus was telling them, this is what you need to do now. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go do those practices, but know that I'm going to fulfill all of it. And one day all of these things are going to be done. Like that was not a good message to guys that made their living off the temple. <laughs> They're like, we don't, we can't have this. So the people were supposed to be leading the people closer to God were keeping Them like separated because they didn't believe in Jesus. But here's Pilate the next morning, they bring him to Pilate. And we know that based in history, the Romans did not like the Jews, they put up with the Jews, they oversaw the Jews and like ruled over them. But if you wanted to get a court case, you had to get there before they opened the courts and you had to be first in line. And then it would be like, cool, I'll do your business and then we'll get on to important business the Roman business. Mm -hmm. So here are the Jews in the morning, they bring Jesus there, and Pilate is like, What is this? What's going on here? And they're like, hey, this guy says that he's a son of God. That's blasphemy in our culture. We want to kill him. But they can't kill him because they've been told Rome will kill you if you kill someone. Sometimes they've made exceptions, but basically the idea was we don't want to cause riots. If someone in your own group kills someone in your own group unrighteously or or unjustly, it could create a riot, could disrupt disrupt the peace, and make Rome look bad and create loss of life for Rome if we have to fight you guys. So basically it was like you have to come to us. If you want any kind of like, I don't know, capital punishment to be carried out. So they come to him and they're like, hey, look at this is what we want. And I love it because Pilate is like he's looking at all of this like this is this is nonsense. He never asked him once if he's the son of God. I don't know if you he noticed this. He doesn't really care about the blasphemy charge. They come and say, hey, he says he's a king. See, that's the thing they say. He says he's the king of the Jews. They're mad because he said he was king of kings, right? They rejected for that. But now they're twisting the the whole thing before Pilate. Like, hey, he's saying he's king and not Caesar. So now he's like, okay, now I'm kind of interested because you're in my region. You're saying you're a king. And I am in charge to make sure people follow Caesar as lord and king. Mm -hmm. So now that's where this whole king of the Jews thing comes up. He doesn't ask him, hey, did you really say a son of God? He doesn't care. Romans believed in hundreds of gods. You could be a God. You just can't be king because he's his king. That was kind of the logic on it. And so as he encounters him, he's like, dude, do you not hear all the things that people are saying over here? And Jesus isn't responding to any of the false accusations. Remember, Pilate knows. Jesus knows. Everyone knows this is possibly going to result in his death. And I'm sure Pilate is used to people coming in just begging to not be killed by him. Begging for mercy. And he's just like, dude, listen to all these, these things. And the only question that Jesus answers, he says, are you a king? He says, that you say rightly. I am a king. And it's interesting because, see, the, the religious leaders, they didn't inquire sincerely about anything. But Pilate sincerely is asking, are you a king? And when we sincerely ask Jesus anything, he'll respond sincerely. See, when he, the question is directed to him in all sincerity, Jesus answers. The problem is now Pilate... He has to make a decision. So do I, do I go and maintain peace? Because if I don't kill this guy, the Jews are going to be very mad now. They're going to go out. It's Passover. There's millions of Jews in his region right now, which is just a recipe for disaster, right? If one guy does something stupid and everyone follows, it's just going to turn into chaos, right? So he's like, how do I play this? He has to make a decision. And I think it's so interesting. He's we're going to see that he's just, he's on this fence where he thinks, maybe I don't have to make a decision. Maybe I can just make the people make a decision for me. Look at the next section. Look at six verse six. It says now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. So here's... Here's Pilate. Initially, he's like, dude, this is not a good situation. I can get in trouble here. If I don't execute this guy, that's going to be bad. But this guy's innocent. It says he knows that this is all because of envy. One of the other gospel accounts says flat out. He says there's nothing to charge this guy with. But he's like, I don't know. All right. We'll take him out to the the area where everyone asks for a prisoner. He's thinking, well, if this guy's the king of the Jews, surely the people will be like, oh, we know the prisoner that we want from you. We want the king. Right. You don't take a pawn when you have an opportunity to take a king. So he goes out there, but little does Pilate know, the Jews have set this thing up where all these guys showed up beforehand because they know this is the day that the prisoner is allowed to be released. See, Barabbas was like, he was a, it says here, he was a rebel that committed murder in the rebellion. So basically, the Jews rose up, tried to overthrow Rome, and in the process, they killed some Roman soldiers. And this is Barabbas and these two other guys with him that we know. There's three of them that were insurrectionists that rose up and tried to overthrow Rome. Well, it seems like the people that were like faithful and like supportive to Barabbas, they know that there's a prisoner being released. So they go down there and they wait so they can get there and say like, all right, let let Barabbas come out. Like his buddies are there waiting. Because it makes sense that the people that celebrated Jesus's triumphal entry, they're still in bed. This is 6 a.m., right? They're in bed. They think that Jesus is coming over to Rome. There's no reason for them to go hang out at Pilate's house in the morning. The people that are there, they're there to get Barabbas out. They have no idea probably that Jesus even got arrested at night. They're there to support Barabbas. But the chief priests and the leaders and all these guys, they start staring up to kind of go, hey, ask for Barabbas. And not only that, ask for him to destroy Jesus. So tell him to release Barabbas, but in his place, we want to kill Jesus. And so the people in the crowd, they don't know who Jesus is. It's Jerusalem. Jesus is from Galilee. Remember, he came in and people were asking. We studied this last week. People said, who is this guy that's riding on the colt?" And they said, oh, yeah, this is actually Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, they said the prophet. Many people did not know Jesus because he didn't do as many things in Jerusalem as we would imagine him to do because faith wasn't there. So now you have people that are hanging out. They're supporters of Barabbas, which means they're zealots. They're hardcore dudes. They don't care for, even if they knew Jesus, they wouldn't care for his message. <laughs> They're like, that's not what we're about. We're about overthrowing Rome. Yeah, kill that guy. That sounds good. So you can see how the whole thing's being stirred here. And look at, verse, look at verse 12. You have Pilate. It says, Pilate answered and said to them again, what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And so that's a gnarly scene right there, right? So you have this this crowd just with this agenda. Again, you have the leaders that don't want to lose their power. Pilate himself doesn't want to lose his kingdom. And then you have all of this just... This wild scene of, of just, a, I don't know how to explain, it, but the comforts of their life are the thing that's navigating this whole scene. These guys are like, we're zealots. We want Barabbas because we want to continue to be zealots. The priests are like, we don't want Jesus because we want to continue to be like corrupt. And Pilate's like, dude, I don't want any part of this because I don't want to lose my job because I really like my life. And it just reminds me when Jesus said in Matthew 10, 39, he said, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And see, Pilate's asking the crowd, what do you think I should do with this guy? It's like, Pilate, have a backbone. Stand up for what's just and what's right. You're wrong. But he's a pansy. Honestly, he's just, he's got power. We know he had two strikes against him already in history. We know that there were two other riots recently before this. And he was married into the family of Caesar. Caesar. So like Caesar was looking the other way on some of the things. And like basically history tells us, he said, three strikes, you're out one more, riot, And you're going to be relieved from power. It makes sense why Pilate's so stressed about this. Like, dude, I don't know what to do. So this way, if they killed Jesus and he wasn't, it wasn't justice. He's like, dude, the people made me do it. The people asked for it and it kept us from having a riot. And so he's a man pleaser. It reminds me of Proverbs twenty nine twenty five 25. It says the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And see, I got to think Pilate was thinking about his legacy. He's like, man, I want to be known as like the greatest governor. And so it's Caesar in Rome will like appreciate me and love me and everything. But it's funny because in his very action of trying to save his legacy, he's only known. Like we mentioned Pilate's name. We all go, oh, that's the guy. (laughs) That's the guy that allowed Jesus to get killed. That's his legacy. And see, so many of us think we can form our legacy in a certain way take certain actions. The only thing we'll be known for in eternity is what we did with Jesus. And this is what Good Friday is about, right? Like who is Jesus to us? To the world, Good Friday means nothing. And to us though, it's like, man, this is everything. Jesus is everything. He is our legacy. <laughs> like my, my job and my life is that people would know Jesus better through the whatever I do through my obedience to whatever the Lord has for me. And for you guys, I would imagine that's the same, right? You're like, whatever the Lord has for me is the best thing. Therefore it will glorify him the most. I will be blessed most in that and it will edify the body and testify to the world, the legacy. That's what we want. That's what we desire. And it's not for our sake. It's for God's. But the minute we start to try to get our life, like, again, like Jesus said in Matthew 10, like you're going to lose that life. But when you find me, man, when you seek me, everything, works out there. And so sadly, to some extent, I think it's a weird thing to even talk about, right? We're like, oh, it's such a it's sad that Jesus went to the cross but here's the reality: what man meant for evil, the Lord used for good. This is like the Daniel situation, right? This is like the Joseph situation where guys go into captivity, into slavery, and the Lord's hand is upon them. He speaks to them, works through them and does great things and they come out the other side looking better than ever. <laughs> This is the reality of Jesus and the resurrection, right? Like we're gonna celebrate that on Sunday. Like Jesus actually was made stronger somehow through death. He's coming in and out through walls and doors that are locked. And stuff. You're like, what? You're like, that shouldn't be the case. You should at least be like a little less power or something, but no, you're even better now. That's insane. Like he was made better for it. We were clearly made better for Jesus's death upon the cross. And the fact is we someday will receive that glorified resurrected body in heaven. <laughs> Because Jesus went with the plan of God. I mean, imagine Jesus in this case thinking, man, I'm totally innocent. There's no way to accuse me of this, of any of these things. He could have just opened his mouth, right, and said, no, this isn't the case. But we know that Isaiah 53, it tells us he was led to the slaughter, just silent like that sheep, because Hebrews 12, 2 tells us for the joy that was set before him, the fact that he could look beyond the cross and say, I am going to bring salvation, to anyone that puts their faith in my sacrifice upon the cross. So it's kind of a weird thing. When we look at it, it's like, are we sad about this day? Like, I don't like this story. It makes me mad that <laughs> Jesus went, unjustly went to the cross. But then I have to take a step back and go, well, who put him there? It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't, it was my sin. It was me that put Jesus on the cross. If I'm mad at anyone, I should be mad at me. <laughs> but instead, how about we rejoice <laughs> in the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead? Jesus resurrected and proved that, man, now I can live in accordance to his calling upon my life through the power of his spirit to glorify him. And I can actually look forward to eternal life because his righteousness has been bestowed upon me. Amen. Amen. And it's like, you read it. It's such a conflicted thing as you're, as you're reading through it, because he sends him off and it says he's going to scourge him to be crucified. that word scourge, it's like, it's a gnarly term. If you look up like what they used to do, they had these like whips and they would they, they were like all kinds of nasty contraptions. They put bone and glass and stone in them. And they would just whip and it would be, you know, I, I believe a normal scourging was supposed to be 40 stripes and they would take one off and count mercy. So it was 39 stripes. Like Paul, I believe Paul got got scourged, right? He got thir- full 39. So, I mean, it's crazy. Like it was like the kind of thing it would, it would make just a nasty, nasty scene on the back they would be whipping and the idea was that it would also though draw out it would draw out like confessions from people that were guilty and so if the confessions came out the whip you'd still get 39 whips but they would lighten up the hit right so if you're confessing like hey also yeah yeah i did this thing they're like all right a little lighter you're still gonna get all 39 but maybe it'll be less of a hit but if you didn't confess anything they would hit you harder jesus was perfect this blows our minds because it's like he had nothing he could confess. And if he tried to confess something, that would be a lie. Therefore, he wouldn't be perfect anymore. So he, had to, he took the hardest scourging anyone ever took. He couldn't confess anything. There was nothing to confess. He couldn't even say, like, I stole a candy bar at the convenience store one time. There's <laughs> nothing, right? Nothing there. And so he took the hardest scourging. And then he goes on to the cross and look at 16 through 20. It says, then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head and began to salute him. Hail King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and they spat on him and bowing the knee. They worshiped him, obviously being facetious on that. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. So, In this case, you have Pilate goes and hands him off because of what the people said he should do, gives into the people's request, says, all right, send them off. And where they take him to this praetorian place, it's like the Roman headquarters for the soldiers. And it says that there was a garrison there and it's a whole garrison. So a garrison could be anywhere from hundreds to thousands of soldiers. And it was dependent upon the political climate. Now, these guys are in Jerusalem. It's Passover. There's millions of Jews. There's not usually. That means that this is probably the biggest garrison that you're going to have. So Jesus took the hardest scourging. Now he's standing before the largest garrison. And these guys are called in for Passover, which means they're not local guys. They're homesick. They're hating the fact that they're around a bunch of Jews because they don't like Jews. And now they have the king of the Jews before them. Like, dude, we're going to take out some of our stress on this guy. And here's Jesus sitting before thousands of men. And it says that they clothed them with purple. The idea is probably that they used to wear red garments, the Romans. So the idea was they probably took some grunt soldier's jacket that was all faded from being the sun. It's like, all right, it's kind of a purplish color. They're mocking him. They throw on like a grunt, beat up jacket on him. Like, here's your robe, king. All right. They twist together a crown of thorns, which is wild because the first consequence that we know of for the original sin was thorns and thistles would come out of the ground. And it's like, hey, we're going to make this thorn of essentially a consequence of sin. And we're going to jam it into your head. We're going to throw this thing on your tore up back. We're going to throw this jacket on you. And then one of the other accounts talks about the staff that they give him. They basically had this reed and they put it in his hand like it was a scepter. And then they, they like kicked it out of his hand and they started beating him with it. And then they're ripping the jacket off his back. Just terrible scene. And I look at this and I'm like, why in the world would Jesus allow this? Why would the father allow this? This comes back to why it's not bad Friday. It's the fact that this is for our salvation. It's a good Friday. It's like, it's terrible in the moment. Could you imagine? I mean, I've never thought about this till right now. This is kind of interesting. Who else was there that saw this? I'm thinking Jesus told the guys about this after the fact. This is what happened when I went in there. The fact that this exists in writing should remind us that Jesus resurrected. As we read this and we're like, man, who's there to tell about this story? Jesus was, was able to tell his disciples afterwards, this is exactly what happened. And I believe Peter penned that down and gave it to Mark, who writes Peter's gospel. That's basically what we're reading here. And so it would seem like, man, we have to remember, Jesus is still in complete total power, but he's submitting to the Father's will. See, at any point, we know, I believe it's in John uh, John eighteen six, where Jesus is in the garden and they come to arrest him. And he knocks them down with his power by saying that he is like that he's the one right that they're looking for. They just all fall down. (laughs) It's really crazy. Like uh, that one right there. It's like, I don't want to arrest this guy. (laughs) This is really weird. Right. And then he ends up putting the guy's ear back on his head. Right. And you're like, this is weird. We shouldn't arrest this guy. Like think of all the checks, all the stops. But these in this case, we see that Jesus is submitting to the perfect will of the father. And again, Isaiah 53.5 says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. And so Jesus is sitting here, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, getting beat down by grunts. I mean, think about it. These guys are not sergeants. They're not lieutenants. These guys really think that they're winning the battle in this moment. And I think, man, Jesus just call calling the angels, man. Just knock these guys out. But if he does that, we don't get salvation <laughs> If Jesus walks out of this scene any other way than dying on a cross, like salvation doesn't come to us. And so as you read it, it's like, man, why does this have to be? But thank the Lord that it came this way. I wish it, I wish it could have been some other way And as Jesus even prayed in the garden, right? Man, if there's any other way, let this pass for me, right? If there's any other way, but it shows that there is no other way. It had to go this way. And so look at verse 21. This is interesting. It says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. And so, first of all, we note that there's this. It says there's this man Simon, a Syrian. He was coming right because it would seem that the reason he was headed there was for Passover. Why are you traveling from what is? It's North Africa where this guy is from. That's what that that description is. A Syrian. Um, he's coming from North Africa. He's coming because he's he's a he's practices Judaism, and he's like I'm going to come sacrifice at Passover. Right as he's walking, he encounters. Like, I think he's confronted with Jesus and his cross. And it's like, dude, I mean, think about all the planning that goes into every year coming to Passover. You're like, I got to get there on a certain day at a certain time to do a certain thing. And now there's this big old Roman guard group with Jesus, all bloody mangled, carrying this cross. And they're like, hey, you, help him with this cross. First thought is probably like, dude, I don't have time for this. I'm busy doing religion. (laughs) I got to get to the temple and sacrifice for Passover, right? Little does he know this is the true Passover lamb that he's going to be. This becomes his legacy. Simon is the guy that carries the cross with Jesus. And I think there's two things with this. I think it's really interesting because he probably didn't intend. He didn't have any idea probably who Jesus was. This guy's from North Africa. He probably hasn't heard about Jesus yet, but now he comes here and he's told carry that cross. And under Roman commandment, you had to do that. If you didn't, they'd they enslave you or kill you. So they tell him you need to carry that cross. But it reminds me when Jesus said in Luke 9 23 if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Simon literally did that. <laughs> he was the only person we know that carried Jesus' cross with him. And I think it's interesting because there was also another Simon. It's not in the scene, Simon Peter who just a day prior, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, right? Peter, James, John, the three best friends. He's nowhere to be found because he's busy denying Jesus the day before. He's off weeping somewhere. Here's this other Simon that has no idea who Jesus is, but someone needs to help carry Jesus' cross here. And so this other Simon gets put, put, for me, it's a reminder of, dude, don't don't get your eyes off of what you're supposed to do because there's always someone else that can take that role. And I know that sounds silly, but I don't know. Maybe Peter, if Peter's there, I can imagine Peter being the kind of guy, he's a big, strong fisherman. It's like, dude, I'm going to help Jesus with his cross. But he's not there because he's worried about himself and he's grieving over his feeling bad, basically. And here's Simon. This guy has no idea, but the Lord's like, someone has to help him. And this changes Simon's life forever. It says that he's the father of Rufus. I think that's really important because Rufus is mentioned in Romans 16, 13 as a leader in the early church. So what that means is that Simon has this moment, meets Jesus carrying his cross, took him all the way to Calvary. So I'm sure Simon stayed there to watch this whole thing go down that we're going to see. And it changed his life to where he raised his son in the ways of the Lord and he became a leader in the church. So here's a guy that was thinking, I'm just going to go do my religion. I have to do my religious practices. Had no idea that he would be confronted with Jesus and his cross and it changed everything. Another encounter to where He didn't necessarily choose it initially, but once he was in it and he stayed with it, we know it changed his whole life. I think that's just so cool, right? Like we don't even know when, at least for me, when I came to the Lord, it's like that came out of nowhere. I had no idea that I was going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I had no idea that I would get like into church stuff and like do, it's it's bizarre when you first get into it out of the world. You're like, who am I? What is this? This It's weird, but you stay with it. Because you believe it, and you're like, oh, I'm going to give this child. And then as you're with it with time, you get deeper and deeper, and you see it. Man, this is truth. That's Simon with the cross. He watched everything that's going to play out. And it says right in 22, and when it was talking about they took him to Golgotha, and they offered him, uh, they gave him wine mingled with myrrh, but he did not take it. This is big. Because this is the kind of stuff It was almost like a, it would numb the pain. Right. And it was almost their way of giving some mercy to someone dying on the cross, but also maybe extend the death on the cross. So that it was kind of gruesome and merciful at the same time. Some some commentators say it was a really gruesome thing because it made that like it was kind of like a hardcore thing. They wanted the people to live a little longer on the cross. Other commentators, like it was another form of their mercy. It was like given one less stripe. <laughs> we gave you mercy because we only whipped you 39 times. Right. We're killing you, but we gave you something to kind of help with the pain. Um, Jesus refuses it. And I think it's big because. If Jesus takes the wine or the, whatever this is, and he, he takes it, he doesn't feel the full effect of the death upon the cross. And it leaves us then in a spot of like, well, was that a total full absorption of the wrath of God? If he only felt 95%, is there still 5% of wrath that now has to come to me for my sin? because he only absorbed some of it. What if it only absorbed 50%? What if he only felt 50% of the pain? What if he only experienced and remembered 50% of the cross experience? Do I have to pick up the slack on the other 50%? But I love it because Hebrews tells us like, no, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice. There's nothing else that has to be done. He absorbed it perfectly and completely. And see, that's huge because I think so many times, I mean, let's put ourselves in that place. Like, oh, dude, I'm taking that. (laughs) Like, that's crazy. Like, Jesus, why would you use, again, it's said in Hebrews 4, uh, 415, that he is our high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses, with all of our suffering. If he takes that, it's like, well, look it, why why don't you stop complaining about your pain and just go take something for it? (laughs) Jesus is never gonna say it. He's like, dude, I know true pain. I've been in that pain. You can trust me as your great high priest. And so I just look at that and then it talks about like the dividing of the garments. Um, this is big, right? It, it says that that they cast lots to determine who would take them. That's actually directly out of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 18 says that they actually divide, they would divide the garments and it's this messianic Psalm from a thousand years before Jesus is born. And it says, this is what's going to happen. Psalm 53 is talking about like, he'd be, you know, the transgressions and the iniquities that were laid upon him. The way he'd be pierced, it talks about that in Psalms. Crucifixion didn't even exist when David and Isaiah wrote about such things. But then Jesus fulfilled it in the crucifixion. So it's crazy. It's crazy to see how all of it, Jesus is perfectly fulfilling everything. And then as we read on, look at here at 20, 25, it says, Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others himself. He cannot save let the Christ, the King of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him reviled. him. So when we look at this scene upon the cross, we're seeing just a whole bunch of rejection. The very first thing is it says that the, the inscription above his head, it would say the King of the Jews. And we know that it says that the leaders did not want that to be the case. The leaders were so frustrated by this. It tells us in the in the other accounts specifically, um, it says that they went to Pilate and said, hey, we don't want you to write that. And he said, like, it's written like I've already written it out. They were offended by that because like he's not our king. Don't write king of the Jews on there. So they're rejecting him as king. Right. And then as it goes on, it says that he was up there fulfilling scripture that it's quoting Isaiah fifty three twelve when it says he was numbered with the transgressors. See, Jesus was hanging on the middle cross with two robbers, two thieves, two insurrectionists next to him. Probably Barabbas' buddies. That's what we imagine. There was probably Barabbas, his two buddies that murdered Romans. They were all going to get crucified that day. Jesus, when Barabbas was released, they were like, well, we have this extra cross. The people are crying out for crucifixion. Jesus is literally probably on Barabbas' cross. So it's Jesus taking the place of Barabbas and the two other murderers next to him. And Isaiah 53 said, this is what's going to happen to the Messiah. He's going to be, as it says here, numbered with the transgressors. If you were to walk by, you'd say there's three terrible rule breakers, three terrible people that broke the law. But Jesus didn't break the law. Even though he was numbered with such people, he he shouldn't have been up there, right? And so he's fulfilling. Here's the crazy thing. He's fulfilling like messianic prophecy, Isaiah 53, right? But right after it says that, these people are saying, Look at you, you said you could destroy the temple, save yourself and come down. Basically, they're saying, If you're a prophet, prove it. He's like, Dude, I'm fulfilling Isaiah 53. You just don't see it. I'm literally prophesying in my life, in my body right now. And you're asking for more. (laughs) You're asking for, and also, they knew that he said he would destroy the temple, but again, they were so confused. They were so blinded by their arrogance and their pride and their unbelief that they didn't realize that Jesus was talking about his body. He is doing the very thing also that they're asking him to do. He's tearing down the the temple so that it can be rebuilt three days later. So Isaiah 53 is being fulfilled. He's fulfilling the very word that they're saying he's not fulfilling. So they reject him as king. They reject him as prophet. And the last thing is they say, man, he saved others, but he can't save himself. They're rejecting the savior. So king... (laughs) Prophet and Savior, they're like Jesus, is none of those things to us. They said, "Why don't you get off that cross? If you, you know, if you're really a Savior, this is the uh, the irony in this is like if he gets off the cross, no one gets saved. He has to stay on the cross for all of us to be saved. So they're like, if you're such a Savior, get off there. He's like, no, that's why I'm on the cross. I'm a Savior. So therefore, I'm a King. <laughs> that's that should have been known long ago, just through his his registry through his. His genealogy and whatnot, right? We've studied this. We know he's a king by, by, by birth, by bloodline. Also, the king of kings by, you know, Mary's account, Mary and God. God is God and it's his son. He's the king of kings. But he also had right to the throne. And then to reject him as prophet, they, they're just, again, their agenda has blinded what the, what the fulfillment of these prophecies should be. And so when they see Jesus dying, like, you're not our Messiah. Our Messiah is going to build a temple. Our Messiah is going to overthrow Rome. And because you're not meeting our little agenda, our will, we reject you as even our savior. And see, it's terrifying. There's, it says that those that were crucified with him reviled him. I do love that Luke 23 gives us more insight. One of the thieves on the cross, right, towards the end, starts telling the other one, hey, dude, you need to knock it off. I think this guy's like essentially paraphrasing, okay? You need to knock it off. This guy's the real deal. This might be the Messiah, and you're mocking him. Dude, I'm putting my faith in him right now. He did nothing to be here. It should be Barabbas there, but this guy, I don't think he's done anything wrong. And Jesus says in Luke 23, 43, uh, 43, he says, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So because this man put his faith in who Jesus said he was, he would be with Jesus in eternity. I think that's a huge thing. We don't get in this passage, but it's important to mess to mention because So many people want to make our salvation based upon works. And my first question is, what about the thief on the cross? What did he do? (laughs) He died. He literally did nothing. He couldn't do anything. He was busy dying on a cross. All he did was profess with his mouth what he believed in his heart, that Jesus was Lord. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I think that's so important. Now, here's the deal. If the guy's not busy dying on a cross, now it's time to go do work for Jesus. But whatever you got, wherever you're at in your life, whatever it is, you have to put your faith in Jesus and whatever is left of your life, serve Jesus with it. And that profession of faith, it's listed in Luke. And this guy's legacy becomes one of a, you know, deathbed repentance, basically. And I believe he's the only deathbed repentance example we have in all of scripture. If he doesn't get mentioned in Luke 23, we might think we have to work our way in to salvation, but because of that guy and because of Jesus' confirmation saying today you'll be with me, it also eliminates like the idea of soul sleep or like penitence or like purgatory. Like, okay, but you did some really bad things, dude. You're going to – I'll see you in like 30,000 years, dude, when you get your, your, your all your stuff taken care of. Jesus says, today you'll be with me. And the last thing, this always kind of blows my mind, but think about like the fact you had uh, you had Abraham's bosom, right, the place of comfort for everyone that died prior to Jesus' Jesus's death and resurrection, right? But – when Jesus died, he took them, the captives and kept, took them into heaven, right? At this point, the first guy that's going to get to go to heaven, it looks like, is this thief robber on the cross. All these other people of, like, biblical history, like, I don't know how the timeline works, so bear with me, right? But all these people are waiting in comfort. The first one's going to walk in with Jesus, it looks like, based on the timeline. They're dying right around the same time. This guy's going to walk around and he's like, who are you? <laughs> he's like, I'm the thief on the cross that just did nothing for the kingdom whatsoever besides put my faith in Jesus. But with that, think of all he's done for the kingdom. The fact that we can, we have some idea of doctrine now based off of that thief on the cross. That thief will tell you today, it's a good Friday, right? He's like, man, I was supposed to die on this cross and be dead for eternity. But because of you, I now will live for eternity even though I'm dying on that cross. Just so, so huge, right? And so look at the last, we're not going to finish the whole chapter. We're just going to look at 33 to uh, 39. Look at what it says here. It says, now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, ilu'a, ilu'a, lama which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And so those are the encounters I feel like we see. We see Pilate, Barabbas, the, the soldiers, Simon, uh, the thief on the cross, the mockers. And then we have this centurion and he's seen people die. He's seen many men killed on a on a, crucif- on a crucifix, right? And he sees everything that's happening. I mean, we look at this passage, right? He's just like, man, this is crazy. First of all, <laughs> Darkness for three hours and it gives us a timeline it's from the sixth hour to the ninth hour That means it's from noon to 3 p.m That's the brightest time of day And during some people have tried to say well, you know, like like how did this work? It shouldn't have been an eclipse because it's passover. That means it's a full moon That's why easter moves every year. It's based on moons, right? It's not always like a certain day on our calendar. It fluctuates It's always a full moon This day it should have been total moon eclipse is impossible But yet, while Jesus, who says he's the son of God, dying for the sins of the world, is being crucified, just as he said would happen in John 4 or 5, when he said the son of man must be lifted up, speaking of his crucifixion. He's being crucified. The whole creation, it goes dark. (laughs) Like, it turns to nighttime at noon. So the centurion's looking at this, he's like, this is not normal. (laughs) We've crucified many people. It just got dark at noon this is strange and then jesus starts crying out my god my god why have you forsaken me and that's such a deep statement we could spend days we're not going to we're just going to say this <laughs> like who on the cross like like is crying out to to god saying I, I don't deserve this why did you do this to me these aren't the statements of the guilty this is a statement of an innocent man why why is this happening this is not right. I guarantee you the other thieves didn't, the guys, the thieves, not the other thieves, Jesus wasn't thief, the thieves on the cross didn't cry out things like this. They knew they deserved their punishment according to that law. Jesus though is saying, man, the heaviness of what I'm experiencing right now. Because let's be clear, it says in scripture that God was in this act of pouring out the wrath. Satan's not pouring out wrath on Jesus. God is. So there's, I know it's like a famous hymn that says like God turned his face away. He has to be there to pour out the wrath. This is heartbreaking for the father as it is for the son. But the deal is he's been forsaken into the hands of the enemy. He's been forsaken physically. He's dying on a cross for real. So he has been forsaken two different ways right there. And I think the third way that Jesus is talking about here is the fellowship that was perfect. The comfort of having God the father all the time, perfectly walking in communion with him. That's been broken at this moment because he's pouring out the wrath for all of the sins of mankind. And as that's happening, he, you know, he cries out and they just see, they hear him say this, Eli, Eli, right. They're like, Oh, he's calling out for Elijah. It's so sad because the people are hearing the words of Jesus, but they aren't understanding what he's saying. This happens today all the time. People hear the word of God and they say, Oh, this means this. You're like, that's not at all what that means for two reasons. One, you're trying to hear it for your own sake. Cause remember they want the Messiah and they know Elijah becomes, comes before the Messiah. So like maybe this is the Messiah, Elijah's going to show up, and then he's going to get off the cross and kill everyone, and we'll be like in power, right? So they're still thinking about their agenda. They're like, let's wait and see if Elijah shows up, man. Maybe this guy is our guy. Like they're waiting for more proof. What more proof do you need? It's dark out at noon. Like you're killing the, the, the son of God. And they're just, they're like, let's see what it is. And also, if they knew Jesus, they would have understood what he was crying out was the, the fact that he is being forsaken because he's not guilty, but he has to die for sin. I know that all that comes together after the fact for the disciples. But if you're close to Jesus, you got to understand that. But you knew he wasn't there to overthrow Rome. You knew he was there to teach you about fellowship with the Father. But these people are like, "Oh, cool! He's talking about Elijah. This means he's going to overthrow everything." You're like, no, you're so confused. Stop making the words of Jesus fit your agenda. Listen to the words and hear what they mean, and maybe you'll actually be saved. Because here's the deal, you have the centurion, he had no agenda. He's just a centurion, he's a Roman, they're already in power. He's not looking for a Messiah. He's not looking for some guy to overthrow Rome for sure. But he's hearing this, he's like, this is weird. I believe this man's the son of God. And I think that's just so huge to us who are not Jews. Because I'm like, this is me. I had no business putting my faith in a Jewish savior, so to speak, right? There's so many people are like, oh, you guys are crazy as Gentiles. You know, that's the Jewish religion. You're like, you know nothing because the Jews rejected Jesus. That's not true. But so many people want to say you can't be be like grafted in, even though we've been told we can. They try to make it like that's the Jewish savior. But here's this man. He's like, this is the son of God. How many times Jesus performed miracles for the Gentiles? How many times the Lord performed miracles for Gentiles? How many times like Isaiah 49:6, 6, where God said Israel will be the light to the Gentiles that they shall know my salvation. You guys will represent me and they'll see that relationship. They'll want in on that relationship. They'll come into that relationship and I want to receive them to this relationship. And yet the Jews that should have been expecting that, they're refusing it. They're rejecting it. And this guy that knows nothing but going to work to do his job as a centurion is like, dude, this is different. And you see this whole scene we know that also there was an earthquake in the other accounts, right? I believe it's Matthew that talks about the earthquake. Dead people rising out of graves, right? Shook so hard that there were dead people right. Like, I don't even know what that looks like. Did it just shake bodies out? Were they walking around? I'm not sure. But, like, this is no good. It's totally dark out. We have walking dead thing happening with the dark. And you have Jesus, like, crying out, being forsaken because he's innocent. He doesn't believe he deserves. All that coming together. And I look at this. And you have all these different encounters with Christ. But at the end of the day, the only encounter that matters is our encounter with Christ. This is the important part of Good Friday. We can read this. It's funny because Good Friday is one of those holidays where people are willing to go to church usually. Easter, Christmas, and maybe Good Friday. They aren't sure why they're going. <laughs> it turns out they're like, "Oh, it's good. It's Good Friday. You're supposed to be good and go to church." Like, "No, that's not why it's called Good Friday." <laughs> None of us are good, not one, right? Like that's not how this works. But they want to be part of it. And God forbid if someone was to walk into church on Good Friday and be like, that's a great story. That makes me feel like happy that Jesus resurrected and that's good for him that he didn't die. But that's not what this – Jesus could have just stayed in heaven if he wanted to never die. He came to save us from our sin. And so this is the thing, man. Every Good Friday, I love celebrating the fact and remembering that, man, Jesus is so good. Like Jesus has gone – to just that, that absolute point that no human would go to for another human. I honestly believe this is the most gruesome, gnarly death, but he knew the joy that was set before him. He saw that we would be able to be brought in, to be brought into fellowship. And I think it's First Timothy 2, 5 through 6. It says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to be testified in due time. And so, in other words, we're testifying this all the time, and we're going to see and actually experience that it's true when we're face-to-face with Jesus. Good Friday is a celebration of that every year. And, man, my sin has been taken away, completely removed, because it used to just get covered in the Old Covenant. It's been completely removed, and his righteousness has been poured out upon us. Amen? And so that was really what we wanted to talk about tonight and what we wanted to look at Um what I'm thinking is it's a good night to do communion. So what we'll do is we will we'll, we'll pray. Um, we'll do a couple more songs of worship. We have a communion set up back there. Um, but let me pray, and then we'll get into that, okay? Lord, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace and for your love, Lord. Father, we celebrate the fact that you you died in our place, not just Barabbas' place, but Lord Jesus, you died for all the sins of all mankind and for whoever puts their faith in you and believes upon you, Lord Jesus, they will be saved. And so right now, just as we pray, if there's, if there's anyone out there that doesn't know Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to say, I want That transaction in my life. I want my sin to be removed and I want the righteousness of Jesus placed upon me to save me from hell and to bring me into eternity with God, to be in the presence of the lamb Jesus. And so if that's you, if you want to be born again today, you can repeat this prayer after me. Say, father, I come to you in Jesus name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins to give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.